Lord, we thank you for another day in which to reflect on your word. And we thank you for the opportunity to study. And we thank you, Lord, for each person on this call who is um, preparing for ministry. We thank you for their willingness to take the time to think through issues that are going to affect the way they serve your people. And Lord, we long for your church to be strong and healthy and to grow. And we ask that you would make us the kind of shepherds and leaders who will enable that to happen. Lord, we, we know that you can work through anyone as long as that person is open to your spirit. And so make us open this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, this morning we are going to look at the material in chapter four of my book. Um, so we're considering this morning interpreting Isaiah theologically. Um, I don't know if uh, you, oh, by the way, we're going to, um, we're going to just do lecture five this morning, and I think it will take me the entire time to go through this lecture, and we'll catch up tomorrow. So tomorrow we will look at um, the, uh, the God as transcendent, um, uh, the transcendent creator in chapter uh, in the first lecture, and then God is sovereign Lord of history, and then God is the one alone who is to be worshipped. So we'll look at all of those three chapters tomorrow, and then we will consider how the fourth century fathers um, had similar themes in their theology. Um, and if we are, if we are a little bit, if we, if we, if it takes us a little bit more than tomorrow, even into Friday to finish all that, that will be fine. Um, um, yeah. So I don't know if you are, how, how much you have read or heard about the theological interpretation of scripture movement. Uh, theological interpretation of scripture has been a, uh, a theme over the last 20 to 30 years. Um, and it means different things to different people. Um, theological interpretation of scripture is a, um, an attempt to read the Bible theologically. And it's, it's implicitly is recognizing the fact that reading the Bible historically, as has been done for basically 200 years now, um, has fallen short of being enough to, uh, to satisfy the church and to, to be uh, useful for the church. So the theological interpretation of scripture movement comes out of the academy, comes out of the universities and seminaries, but it, but it is concerned about reading the Bible in the church. There is an increasing gap between the academic study of the Bible in university and how the Bible is preached. And my first book, Interpreting Scripture and the Great Tradition, was zeroing in on that problem and contended that the, um, that the way that the church preaches the Bible is not something that needs to be overcome, but something that needs to be uh, taken as a model for how the academy should engage the scripture. And so instead of reforming the church to come into line with the academy, we need to reform the academy to come into line with the church, the best practices of the of the church. And part of that invo involves 
recapturing or recovering the history of interpretation. Um, but, but some people take theological interpretation to be uh, basically three, uh, three ways that it can be done. Um, some people approach theological interpretation on the assumption that it replaces historical critical study of the Bible. And so you do one or the other. Um, and theological interpretation then becomes a way of reading the Bible that is, um, does not require historical criticism to be done first. And some people, secondly, to take uh, the theological interpretation of scripture movement to be something that is um, sort of added on to historical study of the Bible as a second step. First, you do your historical critical studies, and then you you add on theological interpretation as a second step. And that would be uh, the, the view of Bernard Childs, um, that very famously influential uh, person in this area. Uh, a third way to, to consider theological interpretation of scripture is to see it as something that is not exactly a replacement for, the, for historical criticism, but which is a replacement for certain extremes of historical criticism. And in other words, uh, this third approach, which is the approach I take, is to, uh, to make use of the legitimate gains that have been made in the study of the Bible over the past 200 years. But at the same time, to reject the philosophical naturalism and the uh, evolutionary metaphysics that drives modern historical, modern academic study of the Bible to too great a degree. Um, so it's a very nuanced kind of, uh, do we do, do we make use of, of academic study of the Bible? Yes, do we, uh, but, but, but the use we make of it is limited to certain areas and rejecting of other areas. So for example, um, the Ugaritic literature discovered in the 1920s, uh, has been very useful um, in, in seeing the immediate cultural context in which the Old Testament came into existence. The Ugaritic literature was uh, discovered um, in, uh, in northern Syria, uh, and, it, and it, it's, it's from a period just before Israel was in Canaan, and it describes the religion of Canaan to a very great degree, which helps us to understand um, a lot about the Old Testament uh, polemic against against uh, Baal worship uh, and the and the rise of prophecy in Israel in the eighth century, ninth century, and eighth century BC, um, and so I I think that the um, the use making use of that material is very helpful. However, the use that we make of it is controversial because there are um, basically two ways to approach the relationship between Canaanite religion and Israelite religion. And one way is to understand Israelite religion to have evolved out of Canaanite religion, um, to, to see it as the backstory to Israel's religion, to see Canaanite religion as the religion of the inhabitants of, of uh, what would become Israel and and, and to see that religion as polytheistic and as evolved, but as evolving in, in Israel per se, towards monotheism. 
Now, um, that, that way of looking at it is, um, is connected with the rejection of a historical exodus. Uh, so, so many scholars would say that the exodus never happened, it's mythological, and that the, uh, the original Israelites were, were people, there were tribes within Canaan, which formed an, an alliance with each other and fought against the other Canaanite tribes, and that in the process of differentiating and separating themselves from the Canaanite uh, culture and people, they, uh, their religion evolved toward what we see in later strands of biblical literature as monotheism. So that's one way. The second way you can understand the relationship between uh, Ugaritic literature as it describes Canaanite religion and the religion of Israel is to see it as, um, as to see Canaanite religion as the context into which the people of Israel move and the writings of the prophets as a polemic against that context. Now this view would see the Exodus as historical and would see the, the idea that Israel came from Egypt into Canaan as a historical event, which, um, and the writings of the prophets then become a, um, a polemic against the Canaanite religion. Now, if, if you, so I guess the question is, what justifies me calling this approach, the theological approach, uh, as opposed to the historical approach? Uh, because in a way, they're both historical. Um, they're, but they both give an account of history. Uh, one says there was no historical exodus. Israelite religion evolved out of Canaanite religion over a period of centuries. The other says that there was a historical exodus and that the uh, Old Testament shows a polemic against the Canaanite religion coming from the prophets of Yahweh. Well, they're both historical in the sense that they both deal with history. Um, but they're not both historical in the way that many academic biblical scholars use the term historical, because what they mean by historical often is um, naturalistic explanations. They, they, believe, they mean philosophical naturalism. They mean that uh, the rejection of miracle, the rejection of revelation, the idea that uh, any idea that emerges must emerge out of its historical cultural context. It couldn't have been given to the prophet by God as a miraculous event, but it had to be. So what they mean by historical is not really what I would mean by historical, but it, it, what they mean is that um, a historical account is one which finds within ordinary history, i.e. non-supernatural, non-miraculous history, a complete explanation for what took place. Well, in that sense, it's not historical. And that's, my view would be not historical in, in that sense. So my view would, so by calling it theological, the significance is that I'm signaling by the use of the word theological, a rejection of the philosophical naturalism that drives many historians of, of of that era today. Now, whether this terminology is the best terminology and the clearest to communicate uh, is, um, is up for discussion, but that's what's going on. Um, that, that's what I mean by theological interpretation. Um, so one, one, one anonymous reviewer of my book said that um, 
said that he didn't think, or she, whoever it was, didn't really think that um, that this was a um, uh, uh, a patristic way of reading the Isaiah forty to forty eight, but that it was instead just a conservative historical approach. Well, I I, I don't really accept that um, that criticism. Um, because I, I do really think, and I'll ex explain as I go along why I don't accept that criticism. You'll see that I, I believe that the, um, that, that, that the way I'm reading Isaiah is in, in continuity with the history of the interpretation of Isaiah in the church. But I, I, I just wanna note that because um, there is a, um, a perception that is valid that, that what I'm doing in what I'm calling the theological interpretation, as I just explained, the third kind of theological interpretation, the kind that, that wants to save uh, and make use of uh, historical study where possible, the kind of theological interpretation I'm doing is, um, is, is similar to um, the way that conservatives uh, evangelicals have interpreted Isaiah, such as Oswald T. Alice or people like that. Um, and I think that's because conservative evangelical interpretation of Isaiah has been in continuity with the history of the church. Um, so I, what, I, I, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm sort of blurring the edges here. I'm saying that there's a, there are overlaps in, in uh, the different methodologies and approaches that are, that are a little bit tangled up in terms of theory. Um, however, I do think that that interpreting Isaiah theologically does involve um, approaching the text from within a theological worldview or a theological framework that is informed by Christian orthodoxy. Um, and if you want to say, well, that makes it circular, well, so be it. I, I'm not. I'm not really worried about it being circular. I think that. Uh, that we have to approach it from within some framework. And the question is, which is the best framework? And what I'm telling you with this little prologue is that um, the reason I'm approaching Isaiah theologically within a Christian theological framework is not because I haven't considered the other possible frameworks. It's because I've considered them and rejected them. I think that the philosophical naturalist framework or materialist framework simply does not, well, it's not true, and it doesn't give us deeper insight into the text. So, um, so we are approaching it from, a, from the position that God exists, that uh, God created the world, that uh, God can intervene in the world anytime through miraculous means, and he governs the world always through providence. So these are the assumptions that we're working on um, as we read the text. So we saw yesterday that the biblical teaching that God has acted in history to redeem the world seems to many modern people to contradict the classical theist emphasis on the immutability and impassibility of God. And so um, we also saw that, that orthodoxy is uh, denigrated as merely reading Greek philosophy into the Bible. Um, so we're dealing here with an exegetical problem, but it's impossible to separate exegesis from doctrine and metaphysics. 
And I suppose that that belief, that, that working axiom is something that would separate me from many biblical scholars today. Um, they, would, they would not agree that you cannot separate uh, exegesis from metaphysics. They would say you can do that, that you can do your exegesis without making metaphysical assumptions. I think, that's, I think that they are wrong and I think they are naive and I think they can only hold that position because they don't think about it very much. Um, I, for the fun of it, um, as part of my research on Isaiah, I decided last year to go to SBL, this would be uh, 2019, and uh, to go to all of the Isaiah se sessions at, at SBL, Society of Biblical Literature, the leading uh, academic study of the Bible Society in the world. And I, I knew most of the speakers there, um, not personally, but I knew their work. And I decided to just listen and to observe and to think about um, what, what they were doing, what, the, how, what assumptions they were making. I, I was, I, my, my goal was to, to observe um, the critical edge, the critical leading edge of academic scholarship on Isaiah in action. I did not hear a word about anything to do with metaphysics or presuppositions or philosophical naturalism or supernaturalism. Um, there, 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 was, there was no discussion of those matters whatsoever. Um, there seemed, as, as I listened to people present papers and give responses to papers and have panel discussions of books, it seemed to be a very high degree of, uh, of unanimity among the participants on metaphysical issues. There was such a degree of unanimity that there was no need to discuss it. The, the assumption was that everything that we're talking about in terms of cause, so for example, when you're constructing an argument for the date of something, and you're looking for uh, the factors that, that went into uh, influencing the choice of this date versus that date, all the factors had to be natural factors. There's no appeal to any kind of supernatural revelation at any point. And that didn't seem, what struck me was that that didn't seem controversial. So what, I, what I'm saying is there's no, there's no discussion of these matters in a regular working session of SBL um, extending over several days. What, what that tells me is that the, um, the academy is basically united on the, on, on, on the metaphysical framework out of which they're reading the text. And they're, they're not really in it, that, there's no big crisis about discussing it or debate. Uh, there, there, are, there aren't two, two schools fighting it out as to who, which set of presuppositions is going to be the right ones to use in reading the text. Um, it, it's pretty much a, a, a done deal. So um, that's interesting. Because in a setting like this, like we're in this morning, um, there's also a high degree of unanimity about the metaphysical framework, and it would be very supernaturalist and pro-miracle and pro-providence and so on. Um, so you have two solitudes operating, uh, and you, you have, uh, on the one hand, 
a, a, an academic solitude characterized by philosophical naturalism. On the other hand, you have a church-based uh, pastoral training oriented kind of solitude, which is um, in total agreement about the um, supernatural metaphysics that govern the interpretation of the text, out of which the interpretation of the text happens. And my observation is that there isn't much discussion back and forth anymore between the two. Now, there used to be, during a period of history, when we, which we call the, um, the fundamentalist modernist controversy, between roughly 1900 and 1940. In that period, uh, there was a great deal of discussion back and forth. And if you read books from that period, such as Oswald T. Alice's uh, The Unity of Isaiah, there's a constant discussion and debate going on. And what I'm saying is that that debate no longer happens today very much. Um, and I think that one of, one of the virtues of what I'm calling theological interpretation of scripture is that it revives that debate and uh, it does pay attention to, to this issue. So what is TIS or theological interpretation of scripture? Um, I had to sort of boil it down. I had to ask myself, what do I think as I wrote this chapter, what do I think is the essence of this? What, what, what features of TIS would I appeal to as foundational and basic to um, reading Isaiah 40 to 48? And I came up with these two things. Um, it's a matter of context. Um, the context in which a text is read is crucial for the interpretation of the text. And context is, is a complicated uh, idea. There are many different kinds of context and contexts are critical, but they are um, often assumed and not often debated openly. So I wanted to talk about context, not just what is the context of Isaiah 40 to 48, but, I, but that as an example of how to read a text, um, what, what decisions should the interpreter make in terms of uh, deciding ahead of time, so what context am I going to read this text in? Um, I think that's a, a huge issue. And secondly, understanding the nature of the text as revelation. And that is, that, is a, that is, to my mind, um, that has many practical implications for exegesis when we understand it as revelation and what we think a revelation is, how we understand revelation. Now, these two uh, issues, because I'm canon and, 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 and inspiration, because I'm going to say that can, that, that the canon is the primary context in which to understand the text. Uh, but the whole idea of canon, as well as the whole idea of inspiration, these are theological concepts. So canon is uh, the idea that, that there is a limited number of biblical books that possess a special authority and have a special role within the church as the authoritative 
collection of writings upon which the church is based. So the idea of a canon is uh, inherently uh, a limited body of writings. In other words, this body of writings is set apart from all other body of all other writings, and it has a special authority. So why why do we have a canon? And and what we, who decided and how did we decide which books are in the canon and which are not? So these are theological questions that have to do with uh, how God has revealed himself to his people and how the Christian church has understood itself. Um, the, the issue of, of canon became very important in the early church. And it, was, it was, was closely connected to the substance of the faith. What is the rule of faith? What is the, um, what is the, the content of the Christian gospel? In the second century, uh, a wealthy uh, son of a wealthy shipbuilding company uh, uh, firm came to um, Rome by, by the name of Marcion, and he made a generous donation to the uh, social welfare fund at Rome, at the church at Rome, um, used to help the poor. And then he um, began to teach. And as he taught, uh, concerns were raised among the elders of the church, and he they began to question his teaching because he was denigrating the Old Testament and he was very anti-Jewish and he was saying that the God of the Old Testament is a Jewish God and that the, uh, that the uh, only real scripture is the New Testament, the specifically and especially the writings of Paul. And um, he, he, he really emphasized the idea of grace, justification by grace alone and denigrated and, and opposed the idea of law. Well, this caused a, a considerable theological crisis at the Church of Rome, and, and it was uh, one of these turning points in the history of the church, because the church had to decide whether, in fact, the Old Testament was essential to the interpretation of the New Testament. In other words, the decision to have a two-testament Bible, to, to have an Old Testament and a New Testament on equal footing, was a theological decision to the effect that the right interpretation of the of the new of the meaning and significance of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus requires um, understanding that within the context of the Old Testament. Marcion's uh, teaching would lead you to think that you could understand Jesus perfectly well without any reference to the Old Testament, and the church had to decide whether that was one of the acceptable options, whether that was within the range of orthodoxy, or whether it was so, so heretical and so bad that it had to be opposed and, and, uh, and fought against. And of course, you know this, that the, uh, the, the answer, of course, to that question, the church decided to, uh, to, uh, uh, to prevent Marcion from teaching, and they even gave him his money back and, and said, uh, basically, get lost. Um, we, we don't want your teaching here. That was a fundamental move. That was a, you know, people uh, in the wake of the Dan Brown movies, the Da Vinci Code and all that, you have people going around saying that the, that the, uh, there were many books in the, that could have been included in the New Testament that weren't because in the fourth century, Constantine decided to exclude certain books from the, from the canon and decided to choose arbitrarily these ones rather than those ones. Yeah, well, well, that's all historically unwarranted and, and wrong because 
the canon was essentially in place by the second century. Um, the four gospels and the letters of Paul formed the heart of the New Testament. And the only debate that went on in the third century was uh, a little bit of debate over James and Revelation, um, a little bit of, uh, there was some question about the authorship of Hebrews, but it was mainly, it wasn't because of anything, anything in Hebrews that was uh, problematic con content-wise, but merely the, the issue of authorship. Um, but really, it was just nibbling around the edges. The canon was set in stone, uh, you know, within um, shortly after the lifetimes of the, of the, of the apostles. Uh, it, 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 so there's a New Testament that proclaims Christ with Paul's letters that explain and apply the meaning of Christ to church problems and issues. And, and then there's the, the Old Testament, and that's the essence of the canon. And whether you, you know, debate Second Peter for a few years or not uh, doesn't really affect the, the main point that it's a New Testament Bible with an Old Testament, which is basically the Hebrew Scriptures, and a New Testament focused on the Gospels and, and the letters of Paul. But that's a theological decision. You know, to, to the canon gives a certain theological shape to Christianity. Uh, uh, so, so a canon versus no canon gives a theological shape. A canon that involves the Old Testament gives a certain theological shape. A canon that sees the Old and New Testament as mutually interpreting, it gives, it gives the, the Christianity a certain kind of theological shape. So it's a very theological concept, concept. And revelation is also a very theological concept. The whole idea of revelation is central to Christianity, um, central to Judaism, central to the Old and New Testament both. And this idea that, that something new is revealed through the prophets and apostles that human beings couldn't have grasped or uh, uh, without the aid of revelation. And so one of the, one of the practical down-to-earth uh, tests that I apply to any interpretation of Isaiah is, would this interpretation of Isaiah be possible if it were not for the fact of revelation? And if the interpretation of Isaiah is possible, would be possible, thinkable, without revelation, then I am suspicious of it. Because that, that's, a, that's a point against it. Because it seems to me that uh, a true interpretation of Isaiah should require the category of revelation to make sense of it. Okay. So what I hope to show by focusing on Isaiah 40 to 48 is that Trinitarian classical theism is a restatement of the plain sense of the text. That may seem like a bold uh, uh, statement, but I, I, think that it is, um, I think that it is true and I wanna show, I wanna argue for it over the next four lectures. Secondly, Trinitarian classical theism not only arises out of the text, but allows us to penetrate more deeply into the subject matter of the text, which is God. So do you see what I'm, what I'm doing there? I'm saying Trinitarian classical theism arises out of the text, but after it has done so, after we think about the nature of God that we read in the text, 
Further contemplation of the nature of God allows us to go back in a second exegesis and read the text even more deeply to see even more truth than we would have otherwise. Now, I'm, I'm aware that that is a new way of looking at the text for those who come from a biblicist perspective. Many who come from a biblicist perspective assume that once you understand a text, you understand a text, end of story. And it may even make some people nervous to talk about deeper meaning in the text or meaning that's not on the surface and not there um, in it, that you don't see initially, but you do see later. Well, I don't think it should make anybody nervous. I think that um, that, that is the testimony of the great interpreters of scripture all through the history of the church. I think people have, and, and I think that pastors who are serious about expounding scripture would, would give testimony to the same thing. For example, um, when you have been preaching for a long time, and you have occasion to go back to a biblical book that you preached on 20 years ago, and you read it, and you study it, and you see more meaning, more truth there than you saw before. Well, that's an experience that is similar to what I'm talking about. Um, because the text has stayed the same, but you have hopefully grown. And your perception and understanding of God and his work should have been enhanced by those 20 years. You should have, you should have learned more. You should be a better student of the whole Bible. You should have uh, understood. You should, you should be deeper in your, in your Christian walk. And by the way, um, the church fathers see sanctification as the outcome of good exegesis. Um, there are many people today who see exegesis as essentially a secular act. Um, it's just a, an act of scholarship. It's just, a, you know, there's a formula, there's a method, you just follow it, you apply it, you learn the Greek, you, you study the text, and, and it's very mechanical and very uh, uh, academic. But for the church fathers, studying the text of the Bible was a means of sanctification. It was a means by which the Holy Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ. Um, and that one of the one of the ways that that you see that is in the the way that um, that sin emerges as the main problem in interpretation. Our own sin. Um, very often, uh, you know, I think it was. Um, I think it was uh, J.K. Chesterton, but I, I could be wrong on this, uh, but somebody who said, it's not the parts of, might have been Spurgeon, uh, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts I do. You know, and and the, the, the reluctance to believe and obey is often a barrier to deeper understanding. And so it, as it, so it's not just that sanctification is caused by reading and exegesis, it's that when the Spirit sanctifies us, we become more open to the reality and the truth that we, that we encounter in the text. So what that means then is that um, 
one reading of the text won't do. There's got to be multiple readings of the text. And, and, uh, this is, and so the, the process of exegesis is not a cut and dried method. It's more of a lifetime discipline, spiritual discipline. Um, I don't know who it was that said, uh, bury yourself in a dictionary, rise up in the presence of God. But, but the, the academic study of the text, you know, I, 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 I have experienced translating a text leading to um, a, a grasp of a spiritual insight that was very deeply moving. That should be normal in our study of the Bible. So, I'm, I want to show that Trinitarian classical theism both arises out of the text and allows us to penetrate more deeply into the, the matter of the text. Because when you, when you study the Bible, you study the Bible, you, you, you study the text, the, the words on the page, but your objective, the thing you're trying to get to is not merely the words on the page, but it's God. So if, if a person said, what do you study? If you were to say the Bible, that would be true. But if you said, I study God, that would also be true, right? And in fact, to say I study God would be more true because you study the Bible as a means to studying God. And that means that the, the text is a, a site. It is a, um, a, a place where we have an encounter with God. So, so, so theological interpretation is theological in the sense that it is focused on God not just on the text. It's easy to get caught up in the historical background, the human authorial intent, the archeological evidence, the linguistic evidence, the, 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 it's, it's easy to focus on all the human aspects of the text and forget about God. And that's a great danger in studying the Bible. So we study the Bible so that we can personally know God better. That is really the goal for which we study. And if you study the Bible that way, your preaching will be very different than if you study it in, in merely an academic way. Now, one, one last thing, it's not just liberals who study the Bible academically and not, and not theologically. It's sometimes conservatives. Uh, conservative evangelicals can unwittingly fall into a pattern of studying the Bible and its human aspects and not really personally encountering God. And that, that's a huge problem because, because even if our focus is on doctrines about God, that's not quite the same as talking about God. Did you catch what I just said? Do you think that this, this is why many I don't know how many maybe some academics are not 
preachers because if all academics will be also preachers, maybe this risk uh, will be minimized. Do you agree? Sorry, I didn't quite catch what you said. Try to say that again. I'm turning up the volume. Some conservatives study the Bible in, his, uh, in its human aspect just because they are not preacher also. But if they would be preacher as well, maybe this gap will be reduced. Because one, preacher- One would hope, one would hope that is true. And, and I think that a practical thing we can do is to um, bring back together the preaching ministry and the, um, and the academic study of the Bible so that we, we see those two things as going hand in hand, absolutely. Although I think that it's still possible to focus on doctrines about God while not really focusing on God. And I know that's, that's um, you know, like, let's, sit, let's take, so if I were to critique liberal social gospel or social justice type uh, people, um, I, would, I would critique them by saying, you know, it seems to me that you're more concerned with making the world a better, a slightly better, less, less unjust place. Your focus is really on the world. That it's not really on God. And so what we need to ask ourselves is, if we were to turn the critique on ourselves, what would we say takes the place of God within conservative evangelical circles? It's not social justice. So what is it? Sometimes it is doctrines about God. Now, this is weird because I'm, I'm advocating a theological interpretation. I'm not anti-doctrine at all. I'm just saying that the, that the study of the text, even the study of doctrines of God, is subordinate to, and it is done for the purpose of, uh, actually encountering God. So to have a true doctrine about God should be a means by which we draw closer personally to God, not simply a means by which we prove our theological credentials or a means by which we uh, show ourselves to be more orthodox than other people. Um, so so the, the, when I say the subject matter or the res of the text is God, I mean God, not just doctrines about God. By the way, this is why I think it's hard for non-Christians to study the Bible effectively, because if you are in rebellion against God, and this would apply to even Christians who are backsliding and, and, and in rebellion as well, when you are in rebellion against God, what you need, what you want is um, a barrier to protect you from God. You, you don't want to encounter God face to face. A true prophet, uh, a true Christian who encounters God has the reaction of Isaiah in chapter 6. And the reaction is one of feeling unworthy and repenting and, and so on. So it's not a matter of, uh, you know, sort of waltzing into the presence of God and, and, and taking it casually. It's rather, it's a matter of, uh, of being undone, of feeling undone and, and, and feeling, um, feeling unworthy 
in the presence of God. So, so if you're if you're in rebellion against God and you're trying to avoid God, then what you need is something to to function between you and God to keep that encounter from happening. And what I'm saying is that fallen human beings can turn the academic study of the Bible into that shield that protects them from God. And I'm saying that that's possible for conservatives as well as for liberals. Um, it doesn't have to be that way. That doesn't mean we should throw out academic study of the Bible. What it, but it's, a, it's just a warning. It's just a, uh, a caution that if we, that, that it is possible to do that. So, so that means that, that if you want to do theological interpretation of the Bible, as what, what I mean by it, well, one of the issues that you have to deal with is that you need to, um, uh, you need to really want to find God. So there's a spiritual dimension to this academic practice. Okay, I think we're, um, we're at the uh, uh, break time. Um, it's uh, 11 o'clock, am I right? And this is coffee break time. So we're going to, uh, yeah, we're six minutes into coffee break actually. So uh, we'll, we'll take a break now and come back at 11.25. Hope everybody's had a coffee and uh, uh, I think I need my coffee more than you do. It's only 627 here. All right, let's get, let's uh, get on with the, uh, with these slides. Um, I want to talk about um, my general approach to interpreting Isaiah 40 to 48. Um, so here's something controversial to, to get you riled up. Modern doctrines of God that abandon Trinitarian classical theism in favor of relational theism are reverting to the pagan mythology of the ancient Near East. How's that for a, uh, uh, a controversial claim? So uh, I know you're, you're saying, but Dr. Carter, tell us what you really think. Um, <clears throat> so I, I realize that this is a, a, a very big and, and very, um, uh, in some ways, harsh claim. But let's see if I can back it up. Um, one, one little, by the way, observation. When you look at liberal Christianity today, um, the rationalization of sexual immorality and perversion that accompanies revisionist doctrine and historical critical hermeneutics are just what one would expect. Um, if you, if you, uh, I find it really strange that um, modern liberal Christianity likes to call itself progressive <clears throat> when it's reverting to ancient Near Eastern uh, practices and, and morality. The idea that, that sexual, sexual immorality and perversion are new um, is just doesn't stand up to the historical facts. Okay, I, I mentioned Walter Moberly. Uh, I give a quote from him where, in which he says that uh, ancient Near Eastern prophecy, which is the context in which he interprets Israelite prophecy, does not usually focus on long-term predictions, but on short-term 
predictions, and it's more dealing with behavior than you know calling for change in behavior than it is uh, giving information about the future. <clears throat> so he thinks that most biblical prophecy deals with the near future. Um, but I think that the most outstanding feature of biblical prophecy is that it it does foretell the future. And this is one of the key ways that Yahweh differs from the pagan gods. Yahweh is able to tell the future through his prophet. Um, the distinction between primary and secondary causation allows us to see God as sovereign, even though creatures exert free will. Um, and, and so the, 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 the theological framework in which we read scripture um, is allows us to see God as sovereign, even though uh, creatures exert their free will. In other words, the objection to prophecy is, how can God say the future without determining, how can God foretell things without determining the future? And I'm just saying, well, there's a perfectly acceptable theological way that that's handled through the distinction between primary and secondary causation. Uh, creatures act freely according to their own natures. Um, my nature makes me act the way I do. My nature is the sufficient explanation for my behavior. And my nature is, of course, created by God. And everything that I do is foreseen by God. And since he can predict how a nature will affect behavior, he knows how behavior will happen. So therefore, it, uh, foretelling the future does not destroy free will. Um, but one of the but 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 it's very interesting that that in ancient Near Eastern pagan mythology, and in modern thought, um, this does not this 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 distinction between primary and secondary causality does not uh, hold. And uh, the whole, so there's a conflict between free will and, and telling the future. Sorry, can you define a better, just to clarify me, uh, your definition of free will, please? Sorry, could you repeat that question? Can you define uh, more as uh, what do you intend for free will, please? Yes, well, for me, free will simply means not being compelled to act by an external force. So a creature is free if the creature is able to do what it wants. Um, the problem, of course, is that we often want to do the wrong thing, and oftentimes our natures being corrupted make us want to do the wrong thing, and even things that We've, we even experience a conflict within ourselves between the mind saying we should do X, but, the, but our, we find ourselves doing Y instead. Um, but that, that is, that is I, I'm using free will to mean whenever the creature is able to do what it wants to do, um, what, it had, what it decides to do, but not without being externally coerced. So if I, if I go to the bank and take money out of the bank account and go buy a book, um, that's free will. If I go to the bank, if somebody puts a gun in my ribs and forces me to go to the bank machine and take money out, then that's not free will. But my book buying habit might be um, uh, something that I've lost control over. 
It might be, this is not as far-fetched as an example as you might think. My book buying habit might be totally out of control. I might be unable to prevent myself from buying books. And, and so my freedom is ambiguous, but I'm saying it's free as long as it's my own nature and not some other nature causing the, the behavior. Thank you. So as we read chapters 40 to 48, the first issue is context. And the first context that we need to read the book, the chapters in, is the book of Isaiah itself. So what you think about the book of Isaiah and its composition and its history and its unity is going to affect the way you read chapters 40 to 48. And so the book presents itself as a unified book containing the visions of Isaiah, the son of Amos, um, known in the literature as Isaiah of Jerusalem, uh, the 8th century prophet. Now, I'm unconvinced by the historical critical view of Isaiah as a patchwork of writings by different authors rearranged by different scribes over a period of centuries. Um, in the earlier days of Isaiah criticism around 1900 to 1950, um, the, the, the issue, the debate centered on, are there two Isaiahs or three Isaiahs? One, two, or three. Um, today, however, it's not really about whether there are one, two, or three. It's uh, there are dozens of Isaiahs. Um, the, the, the original Isaiah only wrote a small portion of the book. Most of the book uh, is seen as coming from later times. And even books, even chapters one to 39, the majority of chapters one to 39 are seen by contemporary critics as non-Isaianic. So, the, the ability to talk about the unity of thought within the book, even within sections of the book, has been pretty much eroded by, by uh, contemporary criticism. When you do this, when you reconstruct and rearrange the book into various layers and sections to make it a different book, you make it a different book. So what happens is that uh, people take the, the, um, the, 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 chapters in which there seems to be some dissonance or some difference of emphasis. And they assume that that difference is uh, contradictory. And so they say, um, they, they rush to say, well, these must be from two different authors. Um, I think that's very problematic because um, the, the, the rush to assume multiple authorship and interpolation prevents a deeper understanding of the unity of the text. And, and that is the biggest problem, my biggest criticism of it. Um, it's not even, I, I, I would remain open to the possibility of an interpolation here and there. Uh, I think the, the disciples of Isaiah in the generation immediately following the death of Isaiah Put the book in its final form. I think that the the uh, disciples of Isaiah were recording his his visions and his uh, oracles, and they were arranging them. and And the arrangement does not seem to be chronological; it seems to be thematic. And so, I think that the um, the possibility that a uh, a later oracle could be inserted in an earlier passage, you know, I don't have anything against analyzing it that way. My complaint is that when we, um, when we assume too quickly 
that the order and the way it's structured doesn't make sense, uh, we cut ourselves off from possible understanding. I just, I'm just arguing for more respect for the final form of the book as, uh, as let, let's be sure that we really understand the meaning of the text within its context before we uh, resort to issues of uh, interpolations and so on. And even if there is a rearrangement of material, I still think that the final form that we encounter today is the authoritative form. That's the canonical form. And that is the, and so interpreting that as it stands is what is theologically, um, what is theologically decisive for us. The way I understand the book is that, um, now, when I say the way I understand the book, this is a very complicated book and it can be read on different levels and, and it has different, there are different ways of approaching it and different themes that you can trace through it. And it's not simple by any means. But one important way of understanding the way the book and its structure is to see it as five panels in which we see five portraits of God. And these five uh, sections, one to six, seven to 12, 13 to 39, 40 to 53, 54 to 66, these, th these five ways of understanding God can be understood, um, can be seen, I think, as a deliberate structure of the book. The Holy One of Israel, the Messianic King, the Sovereign Lord of History, the Suffering Servant, and the Anointed World Conqueror. The Holy One of Israel presents the problem. The problem is God's holy, Israel is not. But God has entered into an irrevocable covenant with an unholy people, but God remains holy. So what? that's a problem. The Holy One of Israel, how do we resolve that problem? God's holiness should destroy Israel, but God's covenant promise means that Israel won't be destroyed. How do you resolve this? Um, and the answer is the Messianic King. And the Messianic King is revealed in stages. And so in 7 to 12, we see the initial portrait of the Messianic King. And it's important to understand that God is the Messianic King. Yahweh is the Messianic King. This only becomes apparent gradually through, through the book. This, the middle section on the sovereign Lord of history is important because although this problem of the Holy One of Israel is not being resolved overnight, in fact, it's not being resolved in the lifetime of the prophet. Um, in fact, it's been 500 years um, since Israel entered into the land, and the problem is still going on. The problem of Deuteronomy, the choice set before Israel, either worship idols and be expelled from the land or be faithful to me and I will bless you in the land. That choice is, you know, it, it wasn't a year long choice. It was, it's been 500 years now and the promised threatened judgment has not yet fallen. The exile has not yet happened. So this raises the question of history. Is God really in control or, you know, are we just is nothing happening in terms of the fulfillment of the promised judgment of, of Deuteronomy? Is nothing happen, happening because um, it's all this is all mythological and there's no real God anyway? Is this not happening because God's not really in control? Why is this not happening? Why, why hasn't this problem been resolved in all this time? 
And of course, uh, from the perspective of the eighth century, looking back, it's been a long time, but when you think about it, the eighth century to Jesus is another long time. So there's a, there's a lot of centuries in here in which the problem goes unresolved. So is God in control of this history? So that's a, that, that is a very important question that the prophet has to deal with. And that's why so many chapters are devoted to it. And then you have the final two um, elaborations of the Messianic King. Two panels which are never really reconciled or put together by Isaiah, but they're simply, it's as if God says to Isaiah, the Messianic King will be a suffering servant and the Messianic King will be an anointed world conqueror. And then leaves poor Isaiah wondering how these two things fit together. And are we in the intertestamental period, um, Jewish uh, messianic expectation was all over the map. Um, uh, there was one, one approach was to, to see two messiahs um, and uh, a messiah from the, from the tribe of David and, and, a, and, a, and a Judah and, a, and, a, and another messiah. And I mean, one messiah who would die, another messiah who would come and raise him from the dead. There was no consensus about how some, some just ignored the suffering servant, said, no, the suffering servant's just Israel, and the, the, the anointed world conqueror is the, is the Messiah. And that was probably the dominant um, view at the time of Jesus. But Isaiah never really resolves how these two fit together. Jesus himself, I think, in reading Isaiah, came to understand clearly for the first time that the Messiah must first suffer, then die. It was Jesus who invented the two-stage coming of the Messiah. Um, and that, that dominates the New Testament. So this is the structure of Isaiah. So when you look at the structure this way, you can see that it's all about God. It's about God and his holiness and his connection to an unholy people. It's God who rescues his people as the messianic king. God who is sovereignly in charge of history all, all the while that this process is going on. And it is God who is revealed both as the suffering servant and the anointed world conqueror. The relationship of law and prophets is key to the structure of the Old Testament. Did Isaiah know Genesis 1 to 3 and Exodus 1 to 15? Did, did he know in particular Genesis 1-1 and Exodus 3-14 and 15? And did he, could the prophet Isaiah in the 8th century BC assume that his readers, his hearers, would know those texts? Well, Isaiah 40, as I will argue tomorrow, seems to indicate that the answer is yes. Because you see creation and Exodus imagery used in Isaiah 40. But the reconstruction of the order of the Old Testament by historical criticism in the past two centuries would indicate that the answer is no. Uh, Wellhausen saw the prophets as the founders of Israel's religion. And again, we go back to the, what I started out by talking about, the, the historical approach. Uh, much historical criticism says there's no historical exodus and that Israel's religion evolved uh, naturalistically out of pagan polytheism in Canaan. So was, or was Israel's religion originally polytheistic? Was the exile then really because of Israel breaking the covenant? Or was the covenant 
invented as an ex post facto idea designed to explain the exile? Was the exile invented, was the idea of, ex, of uh, the covenant invented by Jews in the exile to explain why Israel was, uh, why Jerusalem was destroyed in 586? Is the law the proper background against which to read Isaiah? So these are questions of context. Another, uh, another issue of context is the Bible as a whole. And specifically, what I mean by that is, are we to understand the proper inter interpretation of Isaiah to be determined by the New Testament or not? Um, the New Testament gives a messianic interpretation of Isaiah. Rabbinic Judaism rejects that interpretation. Modern historical criticism largely rejects it as well. Very interesting. So what I'm suggesting is that when you, when you have an interpretation of the book of Isaiah, which is at odds with the interpretation of Isaiah given in the New Testament by the apostles, you have a problem. The problem you have is the unity of the Bible. Now, this is a kind of an approach to theological interpretation that is quite, this is one of these points where there's a real difference between, um, between theological interpretation and traditional historical critical interpretation as it has developed over the past two centuries. Because I'm suggesting that it is not feasible to have a, you know, that the true interpretation of Isaiah cannot be one that, that is at odds with the New Testament interpretation. And they would say, no, you're reading the New Testament into the, into Isaiah. And I'm saying, and what exactly is wrong with that? Okay, so I realize that's, that's controversial, but think about it. Um, why is it wrong to read Isaiah in the light of the New Testament if the Bible is a unified book with, with a common theme and if, if the canon is theologically uh, solid? It seems to me that if you don't, interpret Isaiah in a way that accords with the New Testament, you are basically rejecting the canon. Um, that makes you as bad as Marcion, in my view. So the idea that, that um, so, so what, what, what we really have is two theologies in conflict interpreting Isaiah. We have a Marcionite theology, and we have an Orthodox New Testament theology, and they're clashing. So it's not like I have theological presuppositions, but they don't. That's not really the case. We both have theological presuppositions, we just have different ones. In other words, I know that many academic historical critics would like to imagine in it's crucial to their self-image that they imagine that they don't have any theological presuppositions driving their exegesis. 
But what I'm saying is that it's inevitable. We all do, and we can't get away from it. So I'm not even saying it's their intention to be theologic, to read theology into their interpretation of Isaiah. I'm just saying that reading Isaiah is inherently a theological act. That you can't escape that. So it's the enlightenment where you see the real break in Isaiah interpretation. Uh, one of the, the things I'd like to point out is that my interpretation of Isaiah is in harmony with the mainstream of Christian interpretation of Isaiah from the apostles to the enlightenment. So it's not exactly novel or, uh, or, 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 or parochial. It's very much in the mainstream. But in the Enlightenment, um, which comes to its climax with Kant's rejection of classical metaphysics on the basis of Hume skepticism, the Enlightenment um, is the, the place where historical criticism emerges and becomes prominent. And what I'm doing here is I'm interpreting the development of historical criticism um, in a certain way, which I think gives us insight into why it's a problem. The Enlightenment myth of the cosmos as a giant machine gives way to the 19th century myth of the cosmos as a living organism. Um, the problem with the 18th century worldview from the point of view of European elites who were in the process of rejecting Christianity, the problem was this, how does the cosmos move? Where does motion come from? Now, classical metaphysics explained that by reference to God and even in the 18th century, even though deism was very prominent, deism said God creates the world and sets it in motion, but then withdraws and has nothing to do with being involved with the world. That's deism. But you notice they couldn't explain how the world, how things move without a reference to an original creator. Um, what the, ninth, the, 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 the importance of the shift in the 19th century to conceiving of the universe as a living organism, it was a way to deal with that problem, to get to be able to think of the cosmos in a completely atheistic way, to be able to see the cosmos as not requiring a creator. And of course, the other aspect of that, that's why Darwinism was so um, readily accepted, because it allowed people to who wanted to do so to see the world, the universe, as not requiring a creator. And so the universe was seen as self-moving. Now, my, my critique of this is that all that means is that you've just dipanized the universe. You haven't gotten rid of God. You've just changed. Instead of having a transcendent God who creates the universe, you've now attribute, give, taken the attributes of God and, and attributed them to the universe itself. Now the universe is your God but you haven't really gotten rid of God, right? So um, in, 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 in the 19th century, you see the rise of pantheism. And so history comes to be seen as an imminent power that moves nations in history. We see this in Hegelian philosophy. And it's no surprise that in this context, pantheism and polytheism would come back in vogue. A lot of people see them as at odds with each other, but actually they're complementary, as I said yesterday. Now, here's the interesting inversion. 
divine transcendence begins to be referred to as mythological. My argument is that that is misusing the term mythological because divine transcendence is the alternative to mythological thinking, as we shall see. So the liberal project uh, really took off in the 19th century. Uh, it has two branches stemming from Spinoza, the historical criticism of the Bible and Schleiermacher doctrinal revision. And the myth of the cosmos as, a, as eternal and alive, evolving through time with humanity being the cosmos coming to consciousness, this became dominant in the West in the 19th century. This is a different religion from Christianity. In fact, it is actually closer to the religion of Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Canaan, the nations around Israel, than it is to the Bible. Um, this new religion is enabled by philosophical naturalism. Now, there is one major difference between what we call progressive Christianity or liberal, liberal theology. One major difference between that and ancient Near Eastern mythology, and that is the myth of progress. There was no progress in ancient mythology. Progress in liberal theology is a hangover from Christian eschatology. They've retained the eschatology without Christ. They've retained the eschatology without God. Or you could put it this way, they have, they have gone from believing in a transcendent creator to believing in a uh, mythological, um, uh, under, uh, with, to a divinized cosmos. Uh, but they still believe that history is progressive, that we're heading towards some kind of consummation, some, kind of, some sort of utopia. Um, I, I argue in the book that that's, that's not really... Um, that's not really logical. That's not really going to last. It's um, uh, the progress without God isn't going to be a coherent concept for very long. But, but I'm just saying that in the 19th century, they're still very, very high on progress. The point of evolution is not to explain things. It's more of an application of the new metaphysics, the myth generated by philosophical naturalism. So natural selection displaces creation. You, if you have natural, natural selection would, was seized upon as being so significant because it replaced the idea of creation. Because after all, biological life looks designed. We all agree on that. It, you know, it looks like the heart was designed for a purpose. The brain's designed for a purpose. Everything seemed, eyes seem to have purposes. And natural selection was, was so important to this worldview because uh, it, 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 it purports to explain uh, why creation looks designed, even though there was no designer. But nothing in Darwinism explains why there is something rather than nothing. Nothing in Darwinism explains why there should be a cosmos in the first place. Um, what we need to understand is that the transcendent creator explains far more than just the origin of species. The transcendent creator does explain the origin of species, but much more. It explains uh, why there is anything, why there is something rather than nothing. Transcendent ex creator explains why there could be a goal to creation. Uh, it explains far more than that. So the discipline of modern biblical studies emerged out of the matrix of evolutionary metaphysics in the 19th century, when the myth of progress reigned supreme. 
So when you take something like what I talked about earlier, the emergent, the, the, the historical critical idea that Israel's religion emerged out of Canaanite paganism, that there's this move from polytheism to monotheism, that move was understood as progress by this, by this approach. That, that religion, um, the, the, the assumption of 19th century historical critics was that religion inevitably progresses through history and it progresses from polytheism to monotheism. Um, why monotheism would be progress is, is you know, you're, you're not supposed to ask that question. You're just supposed to assume that it's progress. Um, but the idea of an eternal cosmos evolving is the, peg, is the very pagan mythological worldview of the culture in which the Bible was written as an alternative. In other words, the Bible is written against the, the worldview that emerges in the 19th century as the context for interpreting the Bible. Um, the core of mythological thinking The, the core of mythological thinking is, um, is that uh, the concept of continuity. Uh, if you imagine a, uh, John Oswald, by the way, in this excellent book here, uh, The Bible Among the Myths, I would highly commend this book to you. It's a very important book. Um, John Oswald is the author of a major commentary on Isaiah, excellent commentary. And uh, this, this book is, is, is really, really helpful. He talks about the idea of continuity and he has a, a, a diagram here. So it's a circle and the circle is divided into three sections. There's the divine, the human and nature. So there's, there's us, there's the gods, and then there's the natural world. And they're all within the circle. And so the idea of continuity is a community of essence between all three of these. So there's a continuity of essence between the divine nature, and human beings. That, he thinks, is the fundamental idea in ancient Near Eastern mythology, which is, and it's the fundamental idea of this modern evolutionary metaphysics that I'm, that I'm talking about that emerged, that, that rises in the 19th century. Now, one thing to note is that mythological thinking, in this sense, has been widespread throughout the world. Uh, you see mythological thinking in India, you see it in Egypt, you see it in Mesopotamia. It's not, um, it's not uh, limited to one historical epoch or one civilization. It's widespread all over the world. The Old Testament, with its emphasis on a divine transcendent creator, is very um, odd. It's, it, it really stands out as, as something different from all the other cultures. And so the, the, I would argue that, that the idea that we see in the Bible of a transcendent creator could not have evolved out of the mythological cultures of the ancient Near East. Um, if it could have evolved out of, ancient, of the cultures of the ancient Near East, then why didn't it evolve elsewhere? You know, the, the civilization of India is just as old as Mesopotamia. Why didn't it evolve there? 
Why didn't it evolve in North American native people? Why didn't it evolve uh, somewhere else? It never evolved anywhere else because it didn't evolve at all. It was revealed to, to humans by God. The, the, the divine transcendence was revealed to God, to his prophets by Yahweh. And that's why it was there in Israel but it did not, uh, it, it couldn't have evolved out of a mythological worldview. Okay, what are the characteristics of mythology? Only the present is real. Time is not important. Pro there's no such thing as progress. Uh, there's a big emphasis on fertility and potency uh, because, you know, the whether the flocks are fertile, whether the crops grow is, uh, life depends on that. Uh, and that's a preoccupation. There's a denial of boundaries, very interesting. Incest, bestiality, homosexuality are all transgressions of boundaries. And uh, so paganism is characterized by transgressions of boundaries. Why? Well, because if you think of the continuity principle, if human nature and divine are all part of, of one, then expressing the oneness and the commonality of all three is very important. And boundaries would be antithetical to the worldview. In Genesis, we see boundaries all over the place. God divides light from darkness. He divides sea from land. He divides, you know, the different kinds of animals. Each uh, male and female are ordered toward each other. Um, the Bible, the Old Testament contains uh, a, a sexual ethic centered on marriage, uh, monogamous lifelong marriage between a man and a woman as the foundation of family life. And so sexuality is to be contained within that channel, within that boundary. But in, in pagan mythology, uh, the, the, the religions around Israel were, uh, they encouraged prostitution and the denial of boundaries. Also, number four, reality is chaotic and violent rather than peaceful and ordered. And uh, there's no transcendent creator. There's no transcendence. There is nothing above or beyond the cosmos. The cosmos is all, and you, you know, you, Carl Sagan wrote a book called Cosmos. He's a scientist. He, and, and the book begins with a, a confession of faith. Uh, it begins with the cosmos is all there is, all there ever was, all there ever will be. Um, that's, a, that's a good confession of faith to describe the religion of, of uh, modern mythology. And the Old Testament is a polemic against all this. The Old Testament is a polemic against pagan religion inspired by the mythological worldview. Now, instead of seeing uh, the Old Testament as evolving out of this paganism, John Currid in this book, Against the Gods, suggests that the way to understand the Old Testament is as a polemic against that kind of religion. So um, the historical critics may criticize a theological interpretation of Isaiah by saying, well, it's not historical. You're not taking history into account when you interpret the Bible. Well, actually we are taking history into account, but not in the way they are. They are taking history into account by saying that the Old Testament evolves out of pagan uh, mythology I'm taking history into account by saying that the Old Testament is a polemic against pagan mythology. Um, reading the Old Testament 
also means reading it as revelation. So context revelation, these are the two themes that I've been working on here. Um, so here I'm running out of time. So I have five minutes left, I believe. Um, oh yes, we still have time for a question and answer. Um, eight to nine. Okay, we're not as not as bad off as I thought. Uh, 12, 15, I have 10 more minutes. Uh, no, five more minutes and then we take a break. Okay. All right. What I'm trying to do, and I hope this is clear, is I'm trying to suggest to you that liberal theology in the 19th century reverted back to ancient mythological thinking. And so instead of interpreting the Bible correctly as a polemic against mythology, it accepted mythology. What, what, what you could put it this way, liberal theologians switch sides. Instead of being on the side of the Old Testament against ancient Near Eastern mythological thinking, they, they, they became on the side of the ancient mythological thinking against the Old Testament. And this is, um, this is a pretty big deal. I mean, this is, um, this, this, is, this is absolutely fundamentally, um, uh, it, it completely ruins it, it, the, um, the uh, uh, interpretation of the Old Testament. So let's try to, uh, to get a few things clarified here. So first of all, let's, let's talk a bit about, in the last few minutes before the break, let's just talk about the emergence of Greek philosophy. Now, I want to suggest to you that the Hellenization thesis and the polemic of liberal Christianity against Greek metaphysics, which you hear all the time, like, like it's very common to read books in which people just, by the way, take a swipe at Greek metaphysics. So, you know, just imagine in your mind, uh, the times you've heard people talk about the doctrine of God's immutability. Oh, that's just reading Greek metaphysics into the Bible. Why are they so against Greek metaphysics? Well, let's, let's look at the, let's compare mythology to metaphysics. So if we ask the four worldview questions, where am I, who am I, what's wrong and what's the solution? Look at, look at the, how the answers are so different. And, and remember that Greek metaphysics emerged historically between, say, six, 700 BC and, and the time of the New Testament. Greek, Greek metaphysics, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and their successors was a very narrow movement by a few intellectuals in Greece. Even Greece as a culture was primarily mythological. And there was a conflict between the philosophers and the mythologizers, the, the philosophers and the poets within Greek culture. So it was a very small um, and uh, uh, really culturally insignificant movement. But, I mean, Greek philosophy never dominated any culture. So, but here's the difference. Where am I? Well, mythology says we're in a chaotic world in which civilization is fragile. Uh, you know, we, we, we have an agricultural society here in Mesopotamia based on the fertility of the, of the river valley. 
and we need the rains to come at the right time. We need the flocks to be fertile. We need to uh, we need not, to not have natural disasters like floods or volcanoes or things like that. We need to we need order because life depends on it. Um, you know, if if uh, if if the crops are destroyed, people will starve. Okay. A chaotic world in which civilization is fragile. For metaphysics, we live in a universe governed by a principle of reason called logos. In, um, in the metaphysical worldview, you could do science to figure out how to keep agricultural, uh, uh, agriculture stable, but in mythology, you turn to religion. So who am I? Well, the mythology says I'm a human being created by the gods for their use, born to serve the kings who serve the gods. Metaphysics says I'm a rational animal with the, reason, the ability to reason logically. Mythology says what's wrong? Chaos is what's wrong. The chaos at the heart of all reality, um, which constantly threatens to overwhelm us with disaster. The metaphysics view is actually quite similar here. The irrational forces within me and nature threaten to overcome reason and subvert my ability to control myself and the world around me. Philosophy never really found an answer to the problem of that Paul describes in Romans 7, where the good that I would do, I don't do, and the thing I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Philosophy never really came up with any way of overcoming that problem. Mythology, uh, what's the solution? To offer sacrifices to the gods, engage in magic rituals, submit to the rule of the king to maintain order. What is the solution for metaphysics? Well, education and philosophy. Well, uh, so, so I, what I'm trying to say to you is that one of the reasons why 19th century liberal higher critical studies and liberal revisionist theology was so against Greek metaphysics was because Greek metaphysics is so opposed to mythology. So I'm not saying that Greek metaphysics is identical to biblical Christianity. What I'm saying is that Greek metaphysics and biblical Christianity have a common enemy called mythology. I'm not saying that, met that metaphysics and Christianity are identical to each other, but both of them in significant ways are opposed to the mythological worldview that animates pagan religion. And so if you are in the process of embracing mythology, you're not going to like traditional Orthodox Christianity, and you're also not going to like metaphysics. And I'm just saying that that explains a lot in my view uh, as to why interpretation of the Old Testament has developed in the direction that it has. Okay, so let's take a break and we'll come back and finish off the last couple of slides and then we'll have some time for Q&A. Okay, so um, if I'm reading my schedule right, uh, we are at, uh, um, we are at uh, 12, 15, 12.15, your, 12.18, your time. And uh, we are, uh, we ha have until one o'clock and at one o'clock you have lunch and we're finished for the day, right? Yes. Okay. All right. So I just want to um, make a few more comments about 
about metaphysics and Christianity. Um, if you imagine yourself being a church father in the second century AD, and you have heard, you are basically immersed in a pagan culture that is polytheistic and that is based on mythology. Greco-Roman society was as much mythological as ancient Near Eastern culture was. It was essentially no different. Uh, Greco-Roman society was very much caught up in sexual perversion and, uh, and, and immorality. So um, in that, there was no real difference between the, so the, the, the society that around Israel that was, you know, influencing Israel at the time of the prophets, like Isaiah, was essentially the same kind of society that the early church was confronting as it moved out in mission. Um, it was it was pagan. It was mythological. It was uh, immoral and perverted, and it was um, a society that that was um, dominated by so many uh, just a dizzying array of of gods and and temples and and polytheistic worship. There were, however, a few people, um, mostly intellectual types. Um, usually upper-class nobility who had the leisure time for study, who were influenced by the philosophical tradition, the Platonist tradition. The, the difference between, or the, 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 the philosophy and religion were very close to each other at this point in history. Platonism, uh, for example, the, the mystical Platonism of a person like Plotinus who lived in the third century and who influenced Augustine, uh, his religion was, um, or his philosophy was very much a religion. But the religion of these intellectual philosophical pagans like Plotinus was not characterized by the worship of the gods in the temples. It was a very intellectual religion and it was, uh, was centered on what we, what we call metaphysics. And it was very ethical. Um, by the way, in Augustine's City of God, uh, he will be very critical of the Platonist philosophers who continue to participate in uh, civic religion, what, what he calls civic religion, the, um, the worship of the gods in the temples. Uh, he basically is critical of them because he's saying, you, you guys know better. I mean, you, you know that you shouldn't be participating in this the blood sacrifices to demons. You, you know, you know, you shouldn't be doing that polytheism thing. You know that these gods are not really the the, the gods. You know, the the, the pantheon, uh, Apollo and Zeus and the rest. You know that those are not identical with the high god, the true god, who is beyond the universe and the cause of all things. You know that you shouldn't be worshiping these intermediate beings at all but you do anyway just because you don't you you succumb to peer pressure and you you go ahead along with the crowd and you don't you don't stand out you don't you augustine criticizes them for lacking the courage of their convictions to become more critical of polytheism they're very interesting uh um thing so so their writings were indicating to augustine that they were closer to Christianity than their practice would indicate. 
And so this is why Augustine recounts the story of several conversions of uh, Platonist philosophers to Christianity uh, in, his, uh, in his city of God. So, so this is the situation. The, the early church is the heir to the heritage of ancient Israel, the Hebrew scriptures. So the early church has inherited a strong polemic against mythology, the pagan religion, polytheism, and pantheism. But the early church is immersed in a society that still is dominated by those things. But it has found an unlikely ally in the Platonist philosophical tradition, which is itself very critical of, of mythology and many of its ideas, and which recognizes the that there must be a first cause of the universe that is separate from the universe. And so in that sense, metaphysics is the closest thing in the culture to Christianity. And so they make common cause with the, with the philosophers. Um, and it seems to me that the very points that in, in Greek metaphysics that attracted the early church fathers are the very things about Greek metaphysics that those who want to embrace mythological thinking uh, detest the most. So I would say that it's no wonder that liberal Christianity that is reverting to ancient mythology would be against metaphysics, which puts the whole thing in a different light. Instead of seeing metaphysics as a subverter of Christianity, we see it as an ally, um, not identical, and, and, and certainly the philosophers still need to be converted to Christianity, but less of, a, less of an enemy than the mythological worldview that dominates and animates pagan religion. So the Greek metaphysical answer to the four questions was found to be somewhat uh, uh, inadequate even by the philosophers, especially number three and four. Um, the, the idea that um, we're in a universe governed by the principle of reason, philosophers thought, yes, that's true. I, who am I, a rational animal with the ability to reason logically? Well, that's mostly true, but we also, I also realized that there's some, something irrational in my nature uh, opposed to the rational. And so philosophers were a little bit ambiguous about answer number two. Answer number three, they could recognize what Christians would call sin or original sin, um, but they couldn't, they couldn't do anything about it. And number four was completely, um, you know, it just was not education and philosophy. We're not cutting it. They, they were not really helping us to solve the problem uh, uh, that we face in the world. Christianity identifies the irrational forces in us as sin and offers a way of redemption and a path to union with God. So Christianity offers solutions to the problems that the philosophers vaguely intuited, but couldn't, couldn't solve themselves, had no resources for solving. Christianity was seen by the church fathers then as the fulfillment of Greek philosophy as well as the fulfillment of, of the Old Testament. Even Platonism, the best of the philosophy, uh, had even, it, even it had to become Christian Platonism 
by accepting Jesus Christ as Messiah of Israel, Lord of creation, and Son of God. And it was only by accepting the doctrines of Trinity and Incarnation that these Platonist philosophers could become Christian. Um, I, I, I would like to point out that um, the New Testament actually continues the um, Old Testament polemic against mythology. Second Peter chapter 1. Um, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Um, in the pastoral epistles, Titus and Timothy, Paul is uh, exhorting Titus and Timothy to uh, to beware of myths and to uh, and to not not get caught up in them or allow their congregations to get caught up in them. So the Old Testament polemic against myth continues in the New Testament, and which is just what we would expect. And it also continues among the church fathers. The church fathers. Uh, continue to oppose the mythological culture of Greece and Rome, just as the Old Testament prophets had opposed the mythological culture of the ancient Near East. Now, Kant famously rejected classical metaphysics. Kant rejected the idea that we can know things, the natures of things. We can't know the nature of the of, of the horse or the nat or human nature or the nature of matter. We can't understand, we can't know these things. For Kant, the human mind imposes the categories of understanding upon the sense data of experience and organizes that sense data into uh, categories that make sense. But the relationship of that, of our perceptions to the things in themselves is problematic. We don't know if they correspond or not. We don't know to what extent we really understand anything in the world. So post-Kantian philosophy is all constructivist. That is post-Kantian philosophy is the kind of philosophy that says we don't really know things in themselves, but we construct ideas about these things in our minds. And these ideas may or may not be accurate or accurate to one degree or another, um, but we'll never really know. So what this, this leads to skepticism. This leads to a skeptical approach to everything. And what we see is over the course of the 19th century, uh, an increasing move toward uh, epistemological skepticism. We, we just don't know how much we even know what we, and, and, and one of the interesting things that's going on is that the 19th century is the age of inventions, the age of technology, and you have the steam engine, you have the industrial revolution, you have so many things happening that are applications of science. Western culture during the 19th century discovered that you don't need to know things in themselves. You don't need any sort of account of final causation or formal causation even, all you need is to be able to study things in nature and discover their efficient cause in order to 
create technology. And so on the one hand, you have an increasing skepticism and at the same time as you have the scientific revolution uh, going on and technological advances. So science begins to be acquire the reputation for being objective and, and rational. So anything that is scientific is seen as true, but science cannot answer questions about ethics, cannot answer questions about meaning, cannot answer questions about religion. And so the 20th century inherits this, this bifurcation between uh, a scientific approach to the world, which is only really good for creating technology, and, a, and everything else, the, the higher areas of metaphysics, ethics, you know, the, the ultimate nature of reality, the ultimate nature of religion, meaning, value, uh, uh, morality, all that, there's increasing skepticism and, and relativism in those areas. So liberal Christianity, liberal theology in the 19th century is reinterpreting the Old Testament in the context of ancient Near Eastern mythology and interpreting the Old Testament as Israelite religion as emerging out of Canaanite religion and increasingly stressing the continuities between ancient Canaanite religion and ancient Israelite religion. And so increasingly what we see is a tendency to interpret the Old Testament mythologically. You see Israel, you see the Genesis 1 being interpreted as a myth. So if you have the various Old Testament, various ancient Near Eastern myths taking, uh, it, you know, if, you, if you're reading these various myths, and then you, then you see it, Genesis is taking its place among the myths as another one of them, increasingly. Now, this doesn't happen overnight all of a sudden, but it's a gradual process. So the phrase modern metaphysics is better understood as a rejection of metaphysics. Uh, I'm ambivalent about using the term modern metaphysics. Metaf modern modernity is the rejection of metaphysics. Or the, whether it's Greek metaphysics, Christian metaphysics, whatever, classical metaphysics, whatever you want to call it, it's the rejection of metaphysics and the replacement of metaphysics with mythology. So... What this means is, my proposal to interpret Isaiah as a polemic against ancient Near Eastern myth, rather than as an example of ancient Near Eastern myth, is hugely controversial. Um, the mainstream of academic scholarship today is more interested in interpreting Isaiah as an example of ancient Near Eastern myth, whereas I'm presenting it as an alternative to, and as a polemic against ancient Near Eastern myth. So that means that, the, um, that my interpretation of Isaiah is going to be um, in sharp conflict at, at points with, uh, with, the, um, with modern uh, higher critical studies. And I guess uh, many evangelicals tend to be defensive at this point. They tend to be 
sort of trying to explain why we shouldn't um, uh, use historical critical approaches. And they come off looking like they're trying to explain why it's okay not to use scholarly approaches. Um, and that's too bad because we're not against scholarship. We're not against learning Hebrew and studying the Bible in a scholarly way. What we're against is reverting to ancient mythology. So um, this is this is this these these are the background considerations that go into uh, my interpretation of of Isaiah forty to forty eight. So tomorrow I'll be talking about um, three main ways in which I interpret. Uh, I'll be talking about um, Isaiah forty itself and the the Exodus and creation imagery that's used there. And I'll be talking about how divine transcendence is emphasized there. And then I'll be, and then I'll talk about two themes that extend throughout the entire um, nine chapters, the, um, the theme of the sovereignty of God over history and the theme of monotheism. And I'll be, I'll be looking at those three, those three topics, transcendence, sovereignty, and monotheism. And as I do that, I'll be interpreting those chapters as an, as an anti-mythological polemic. And in so doing, I will, I'll be showing that the, um, the anti-mythological polemic that we see in the Bible leads the church fathers to develop what we call classical, Trinitarian classical theism or classical orthodoxy. So that, that's, that's on for tomorrow. At this point, I'll open it up for questions if there are any questions that you would like to ask. And if you are in the room at, at the seminary, uh, if you could come closer to the microphone, I, I found that worked better yesterday. We switched mics, and hopefully you can hear us without us talking to the toilet, don't they? Can you hear? No. <laughs> so we tried with a different microphone, but clearly it still doesn't pick up from that far away. Can you hear me now? Or? Uh, I can hear you better now. Yeah, okay. Well, I was just checking the uh, sound, but I do actually have a question. I was looking at that comparison of metaphysics and mythology and thinking that in our modern culture, there's a massive focus on education as the answer to problems. Uh, would it be interesting to explore the idea that modern culture takes the worst of mythology and some of the worst of Greek metaphysics together? Well, yeah, these things are always messy because um, you, there's always a historical process going on. Um, you don't just have uh, a sudden shift overnight from mythology to metaphysics or from metaphysics to something else. It just, it, it's, it's a process that, that evolves and you can, you can trace the process in the history of interpretation of, of the Old Testament. Um, it, I think definitions matter here in trying to analyze what's going on and what, what is dangerous and what is not dangerous. So I would say that um, I would say that the anti-metaphysical philosophy of Kant opened the door to the uh, revival of mythology. 
So I wouldn't say that modern culture mixes the worst of mythology and the worst of metaphysics, but I would say, I would put it this way, that when you um, reject classical metaphysics, um, well, okay, let's back up. Does Kant do metaphysics? Well, you could say yes or no. He does metaphysics in the sense that Kant and Hume are rejecting classical metaphysics, so they are talking about metaphysics in order to reject it. So yes, they do metaphysics. But do they continue the classical metaphysical tradition? No, they don't. So in one sense, they are rejecting metaphysics, but in another sense, they're doing metaphysics. Well, it's a terminological question. You just have to sort of make your definition and then use the word consistently. I would say that, that you know, take Hegel, for example. Hegel follows Kant, and Hegel is clearly doing, well, no, not clearly. He apparently is doing metaphysics. The Hegelian system appears to be a metaphysical system. But I'm not so sure about that. I think in many ways, Hegelianism is a revival of ancient mythology. So it depends on how you want to define metaphysics. Um, if, you, if you think that, that Hegelian, uh, like, see, the, the danger is that you end up calling mythology a metaphysics. Now, in one sense, in one sense, it's a bad metaphysics, I suppose. Um, so, so it does make sense, but, but for clarity, I would prefer to distinguish between the meta. I would, I, I would say, metaphysics is something that originates historically with Plato and Aristotle, and has a tradition that goes on. It's taken up and incorporated into Christianity, and it goes up to the Enlightenment, and then metaphysics is superseded by a return to mythology. So I would keep the term metaphysics to describe classical metaphysics. And I would describe what happens in the 19th century, Kant and Hegel. And then, you know, like you, you come to a figure like Nietzsche or Kierkegaard, who seem to be rejecting metaphysics. Are they doing metaphysics? Um, I would say, I would say that the 19th and 20th centuries would best be described as post-metaphysical or anti-metaphysical. Um, you have, a, simple, you have a, a similar problem with the word philosophy. You know, does philosophy even exist anymore? You know, I mean, that sounds crazy to say that because every university has a department of philosophy, but is what they do in those departments actually an extension of a tradition that goes back to Plato and Aristotle, or is it something that is the successor to that tradition? Well, that's that's debatable. That's that's something we can talk about. Um, so I guess it's a terminological issue. I don't think we're really. I mean, I think in a way, if you want to extend the meaning of the term metaphysics, you could say that that Hegelianism and Darwinism are bad metaphysics. But then you would have to say that the Greco-Roman mythological culture is bad metaphysics, and the ancient Near Eastern mythological culture is also bad metaphysics. And if you want to go that route, you could. Um, that's one way to, to handle the terminology. But another way to handle the terminology is to say that metaphysics is a historical thing that begins at a certain point 
and it comes to an end in the 19th century. And that what you get that is called metaphysics from Kant on is really anti-metaphysics. It's really uh, post-metaphysical. Um, and, and when, when the cult, so the step one was that the culture left Orthodox Christianity behind. That happened in the 18th century. Step two is that the culture left Greek metaphysics behind. And what happens after the culture has abandoned both Christianity and Greek metaphysics? Well, then you have a post-metaphysical, post-Christian paganism, and I'm saying it's a reversion to ancient mythology. The main point, however we use the terms, is to understand that what is happening in our society right now is a reversion to ancient mythology. In a sense, it's a return to the default setting that most human cultures have throughout history when they're not influenced by Christianity or by the Bible. And so as the biblical influence on our culture wanes, our culture begins to resemble more and more the ancient mythological cultures out of which or into which the Bible came and which were in conflict with the Bible. Um, so however we want to describe that process, that's what's happening. So I think you can be, um, I think one, one, of the, one of the implications of this is that when we read the Bible, um, we're, we're, the relevance is even greater than, than ever before because the, the society that we live in is, is more and more like the society that the biblical writers faced. So for example, so, so one of the implications of that would be that um, when we see sexual immorality going on in our society, we need to interpret it differently than we would interpret sexual immorality within Christendom. Within a Christian society, sexual immorality did occur. But within Christendom, there was a moral evaluation that was officially held by society that said sexual immorality was wrong. And when it occurred, it, it occurred as something transgressive and something that was considered antisocial. In the new situation, which is really the old situation, uh, sexual immorality and perversion is not antisocial. It's like a religious sacrament. It's like a, a, an affirmation of the deepest values of the society, which is a completely different way of looking at it. And I think it, it should affect the way we, um, the, way we, uh, uh, the way we talk about it. Let me, let me give you a practical example. Um, I was just noticing uh, yesterday in something that I read that there, there was a, on the internet a list of all the LGBTQ holidays that exist. Turns out there are 93 days now devoted to various uh, uh, LGBT holidays on this list. And the person talking about this was saying that these are the high holidays of the new pagan religion. When in, in Augustine's day, the paganism was not eradicated by any means. North Africa had worshiping pagans, polytheistic pagans, worshiping idols in temples all over the place. And the church was in a society where there was a strong Christian church, but there was also a majority pagan culture. 
one of the things that the uh, that the church did was that on days uh, that were major pagan holidays, days in which pagan worship set aside for, for pagan worship, the church would gather in the church building and have uh, prayer meetings. This is an interesting uh, thing because it, I, 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 I read this and I wondered, so what would be the equivalent today? And so in every city in the, in, in the world practically now, or not every city, but many cities, we have uh, Pride Month in June and, the, and Pride Parades. Um, it would seem to me that if we understand the significance of the LGBT movement in modern culture, so that we don't see it as, you know, transgressing Christian moral boundaries, but, but we see it as expressing a, a, a mythological pagan worldview, then we, we can see the religious significance of the pride parade. And so what, instead of having Christians, bishops marching in the pride parade, what we should do is we should have Christian churches holding prayer meetings to repent um, during that, that, on that day, so that the, the pagans are having their festival over here and the Christians are having their prayer meeting over there. And we're basically, what, what that does is that it, it's a symbolic way of saying that what we're dealing with here is a, is a religion that is an alternative to Christianity. And I'm, I'm suggesting that that would be a powerful symbolism. Uh, because, you know, the church is under pressure to accommodate itself to the, the dominant religion. This is always the case. Um, and so it, in, instead of, you know, deciding how much we're going to compromise with the LGBT agenda, maybe we should just, you know, sort of stop thinking along those lines altogether and start thinking in terms of presenting an alternative culture, an alternative religion, and uh, praying for conversions. Questions? Yeah, I have one, please. Uh, I'm struggling to grasp the uh, goodness of metaphysics. Um, in this elaboration of Christianity against um, mythology, because we we saw uh, recently within uh, the church history lecturer, um, we studied Platon and some heretical uh, movement of, of the early um, early centuries. So, if I remember well, uh, Platonism is. Uh, Yes, has some common points with Christianity, but it is really uh, uh, such different system, uh, um, yeah, system of thought. So, um, uh, do you do you see uh, a danger in uh, considering metaphysic in such big uh, amount in our in our thinking uh, and in our uh, in, in developing uh, this, uh, this issue, do you see the risk to overlap metaphysics with, with Christianity and, uh, 
and maybe lose uh, the 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 differences of the conflict that there are uh, between these two worlds, metaf Greek metaphysic and Christianity, because New Testament developed from the Old Testament, as we we said, uh, uh, as you said uh, in these lectures. But uh, uh, sometimes we, uh, as some academics, theologian argues that uh, New Testament thinking is developing from the, from Greek metaphysics. That is, in my opinion. Uh, false. It is not true. So I'm a bit confused uh, now because uh, uh, seems that you you agree with uh, using metaphysic Greek Greek metaphysic in in such way. I don't know. Yeah. Well, think here. Here's a possible way to think about it. I don't know if I have a complete answer to your question, but here's one way to think about it. So. The Christians, you know that one of the, the 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 key things that happened in the early church was that the, you know, Jesus said at the end of his life, before he ascended into heaven, his last instruction was the Great Commission: go into all the world and preach the gospel. And up until that point, Judaism had survived within the Roman Empire by by being a tribal religion, by being an ethnic religion, so that the, the Romans granted them an exemption. Um, most of the conquered peoples that in the Roman Empire had to engage in, a, in a, a sort of a political treaty process of mutual worship and recognition of each other's gods, so that the, the, uh, the conquered people would worship the gods of the of the conquerors and the conquerors would worship the gods of the conquered people and they would establish peace that way. And, there, and this, was, this was normal uh, throughout the, the ancient Near East. And, and the Jews, of course, were famously monotheistic. They would not worship any god but Yahweh. And, and so the Jews were allowed to get away with it by the Romans. But here's the deal. The Romans looked at the Jews as this weird little group from Judea that only worships one God. So we're going to make an exception for them. We're going to allow them to, to not worship the Roman gods because their weird little belief called monotheism is just for them. Okay. So that was the deal. And as long as Christianity was perceived by the Roman authorities as a subset of Judaism, it, uh, it, it could sort of function under that exemption and not be forced to worship the emperor or the Roman gods. But the minute Christianity started making universal claims that, that Jesus is not just the, the, um, the, the Messiah of Israel, and, and the God is not just the, the tribal God of the Christians and Jews, but in fact, the Lord of the world. And that word Lord, kurios, was a title of Caesar. And Christians, as Christians began to make these universal claims that the gospel applies to everybody and every human being from every tribe and nation all over the world owes allegiance to Lord Jesus. They came out from under the umbrella of Judaism, and they began to pose a threat to the Roman Empire. And this is why persecution ensued. 
Now, the problem that the theological problem that the church fathers were wrestling with was, do we preach our message as a, a tribal message for the Jews only, in which case we can get safety and protection, or do we preach the universal relevance of Jesus as Lord of the whole world and God as the creator of the whole world? Do we preach that the Greeks, the Romans, the Scythians, the Parthians, the, 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 the everybody owes Jesus Christ and the God of the Bible allegiance or not? So that was, they had to make sure that they, in order to be faithful to the Great Commission, they had to be sure that they were not being perceived as teaching uh, a narrow ethnic tribal religion, but that they were preaching that God is the, the creator of all things and that all people are called to faith in Christ. Okay, now in that context, they encountered metaphysics. So they encountered Greek philosophers who said that there is a first cause to the universe. There is a cause that stands outside the cosmos that the cosmos depends on and which is uh, um, the, the cause of all things and, and God. Okay, what's the relationship of that God to the God of the Bible? Well, if you say they're not the same, well, then you run the risk of being pigeonholed as teaching that the God of the Bible is just the tribal God of a certain group of people, but not the God who is the first cause of all things. But, but they couldn't do that. Because Genesis clearly teaches that God is the creator of heavens, the heavens and the earth, the creator of everything. So the problem for the Christians was they had to, they had to proclaim the God of the Bible as the first cause of all things. That meant they had to in, have an encounter with metaphysics. They couldn't just write off metaphysics and say it's not important. They had to specify when we say that the God of the Bible is the creator of all things, what are we saying about the God of metaphysics? And yeah, what, they, what they chose to say was that the God of metaphysics is not a separate entity, but that the God of the Bible is actually the first cause of all things, which means that they're making a, a claim that they're making a claim that metaphysics is talking that the God metaphysics is talking about to the extent that metaphysics is true and is actually talking about a real God, that's the God of the Bible. So this is where, this is where they were forced into this encounter because if they, if they hadn't done that, well, they would not have been able to really preach the gospel as, as the Bible teaches it. Yeah, but I think that the new Testament claims the universality of God, the, universal sovereignty of God because Genesis thought that and the latest Jews after the exile misunderstood the messages of the whole testament as a, a wall and the start the Pharisees make to preach a different whole testament gospel uh, oriented only towards uh, Judea and uh, the Israelites but actually, the message of the whole testament is directed. Yeah, is it, it is a, a, a especially a revelation to Israel, but um, 
but the the last uh, thelos the last uh, aim is to reach the nations as we see in the abrahamic covenant so i think that uh, the father of the church i i really don't know uh, the patristic uh, writings uh, i admit it but uh, if the, the the fathers are in line with the new testament um, apostles and, and teachers uh, so the new testament uh, preach and fulfill the great commission <laughs> Because actually, it is the message foretold in the in the real Old Testament, not because uh, some Greek philosopher um, give to them uh, the credential to do so. I think I, I don't know if. Uh, well, well, you know, I, I don't think Augustine would disagree with anything you're saying. It's not like the Greek philosophy supplied information that was lacking in the Bible, but it's that the it's the issue is. Uh, how are we, how are, are we going to, what is, the issue is how do we present our message about God as creator in view of the fact that these philosophers are teaching uh, their view of God as the first cause of the universe? Are we saying, uh, in a way, it's like extending the sovereignty of God over metaphysics, if you think of it that way, it's like saying, it, it's like Christianity is colonizing the, the Platonist philo philosophical tradition and saying, what you guys are talking about when you say that there is a, 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 a God who is the first cause of all things, the God you are talking about is actually our God. And it's actually... Um, our God actually does performs that function, and you, 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 if you accept our God, you, you have to, you can't keep on believing in a God separate from the God of the Bible, who is the God who causes the world. Um, so, it, it's not subordinating. Uh, it, uh, Robert Wilkin, the great patristic scholar, says. That what happened in the early church was not so much the Hellenization of Christianity as the Christianization of Hellenism. And, and that was the, the idea, the problem, what, 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 what Wilkin and I are arguing against is that we have to somehow separate um, Christianity from metaphysics. I, I don't think we should be afraid of metaphysics and, and worry about it corrupting us. Instead, we should take it over. That, that's really what, and I think if you study the history of theology in the first five centuries, that's what happens. Christianity takes over metaphysics. In fact, by the fifth century, Platonism as a separate philosophical tradition basically dies out. And, and, and in the Middle Ages, the, the people who are continuing the tradition of metaphysics are the Christians, Christian theologians. In other words, metaphysics lives on as a part of Christianity, but not as a rival to Christianity anymore, because it has been it has been incorporated into Christianity. So, so that's really the story, and I think that people who um, who go around trying to uh, scare us into worrying, oh my goodness, Christianity is going to be taken over by this pagan Greek metaphysics, and we're going to be distorting the Bible. I just don't think that's the way it happened historically. 
So, um, and 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 I and I'm really suspicious that people who are anti-metaphysical um, end up actually being anti uh, certain things that Orthodox Christianity wants to hold on to, such as natural law, the idea that the world is created in such a way that there is an order built into it that we must adhere to and respect and live by if we want to flourish as human beings. Um, so I, I think that the, uh, I'm very suspicious of liberal Christianity attacking metaphysics because I don't think that they are doing it. They're not attacking metaphysics so as to preserve biblical Christianity. They're attacking metaphysics so as to preserve mythology. It's a very different thing. Okay, well, I think we're at the end of our time. I'm glad you raised that question, though. It's a very important question, and I'm, I'm hoping that you um, find this series of lectures um, helpful in thinking through these issues and maybe a perspective that, uh, hasn't, uh, that isn't as common as others. So tomorrow we will uh, move on with lectures six, seven, and eight, and um, we'll, we'll conclude this uh, treatment of Isaiah and I think by the end of it, uh, you will see that Isaiah um, is teaching, when properly interpreted, we can see that Isaiah is teaching a doctrine of God, which is um, the foundation of Trinitarian classical theism. So that's, that's the goal. That's where we're heading. Okay, so we'll see you then tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.